Welcome to Insight Faster, a podcast by MDPI. Open access is only really open if it's open to everyone. So we decided to sit down with some of our researchers to let them explain some of the fantastic work that they do. We'll talk about what it means to them, but also how it's going to affect all of us. Thanks for tuning in. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of the MDPI podcast. I'm Jasper Clough, and I'm an English editor with MDPI in Manchester. I hope to be able to bring you an insight into some of the fascinating work we publish at MDPI. In each episode, we'll be joined by an author or authors who can tell us about who they are, what they do, and why it matters to them, to us, and to everyone. We'll try to cover the huge breadth of subjects in the 296 journals that MDPI publish and explore research and innovation happening across the globe. For our first episode, we're going to tackle the collision between two of the biggest issues that affect all of us, the climate crisis and mental health, with a discussion on eco-anxiety. So it's my pleasure to introduce the leading Finnish expert on eco-anxiety, Dr. Panu Pikala. Dr. Pikala recently published Anxiety and the Ecological Crisis, an analysis of eco-anxiety and climate anxiety in MDPI's sustainability journal. It was an article that received a great reaction, and the link to which can be found in the podcast description. Hello, Dr. Pakala, and thank you for joining me on the MDPI podcast. Can you tell us a little about yourself and your research? Uh, thank you for the invitation. Glad to be here. So I'm based at University of Helsinki. Well, during the current conditions, we are all working remotely. Um, I had background actually in studying religion, worldviews and environment. But then for the last six years, I've been specializing in interdisciplinary research about the so-called eco-anxiety, meaning various psychosocial dimensions of environmental issues. So the wide range of so-called ecological emotions and feelings is very close to what I do. Awareness of the global climate crisis has expanded in recent years particularly in the latter half of the 2010s. Do you believe that eco and climate anxiety have risen alongside this expansion? And that's a very good question to ask. On one hand, there are clear signs that it has grown more prevalent. But on the other hand, one has to remember that we have had people who have felt serious anxiety because of ecological damage and threats uh, for decades. And even in the 1960s with Rachel Carson's pioneering Silent Spring, for example, there was strong anxiety about chemicalization. In the 1970s, the oil crisis and other forms of environmental awareness raising, they also brought anxiety, fear, worry, but also enthusiasm. So this eco-anxiety is really a conglomerate, a sort of bundle of various forms and shades of anxiety and other emotions that makes it a very uh, interesting but also complicated subject to study. It's been fascinating and rewarding and also oftentimes difficult. Yes, I can imagine. And it sounds like there are many parts to eco-anxiety that make it difficult to redress. Your first book was published in Finland in 2017. What was it that encouraged you to begin working on this subject area? Uh, at the latter half of the 2000s, around 2008 and 9, I began to notice 
together with some of my colleagues who did environmental education and related things, that people actually have a wide range of emotions and feelings related to ecological damage or the ecological crisis in general. And there was surprisingly little research or public writing about this emotional dimension. So that raised attention and it was clear that in practice we would need more constructive encounters with that affective dimension if we want to move forward in various sustainability efforts. So my interest was both very practical and also ac academic. So in the 2010s, I started doing more uh, research on, on that. And I found out that several psychologists, especially those from the psychodynamic tradition, had actually tried to think about this issue and even raised some public awareness about it. But it was very, very difficult. And the reasons for that must be quite complex in, indeed. Uh, on one hand, they have they are due to the very understandable pressures to maintain optimism. So move, moving forward, focusing on good news about the environment and not just doom and gloom, as, as they say. And that's very, very understandable. But then the downside of that was that these more dark emotions, anxiety, grief, fear, worry, despair, and so on. Uh, it was very difficult for people to reflect about them in, in public. And that was also my experience when I tried to raise up these issues around 2015 in Finland. It was still difficult then. Then in 2017, when I published my first monograph about this in Finland, then things, things changed. There was a couple of other publications also in Finland who touched upon the issue. And that provoked many people to think about the issue more and also it encouraged them to bring their voices into the public discussion. So then it became a publicly recognized or two also contested phenomenon and, and that, that led to many things. Do you think this expansion was in line with a global growth of awareness about the climate crisis or was it a particularly finished expansion? That's a very good question. Probably both. Uh, you know, sociologists and other scholars of environmental discourses have noted that there's, a, there's a certain waves going up and down in people's interest. For example, in the beginning of the 90s, there's an upgoing wave and then sort of downgoing wave along the rest of the 90s. Then with climate change in the 2000s, a rising wave. And in the 2010s, there's lots of despair, especially after the UN sort of failed negotiations in Copenhagen and, and, and so on. So there's fluctuations in, in people's interest. But of, of course, it was slightly growing in 2017. And then especially in 2018, with the publication of the uh, IPCC climate panel reports about the uh, need uh, to, to stop global warming desirably uh, at 1.5 half degrees. And that was a huge thing in Finnish media discourse also. And then during that same autumn, uh, we saw the rise of the children's climate movements. Greta Thunberg from Sweden, Finland's neighboring country, became a world famous figure relatively quickly. Uh, and actually, many people picked up my book only after 2018 autumn, and then, then it became really, really much more read. 
It's really interesting that you mentioned Greta Thunberg, the Swedish climate activist. Do you think that parts of the world, such as Scandinavian countries like Finland and Sweden, are more likely to show a heightened environmental conscience due to geophysical influences? Are those more connected to their environment, more affected by climate issues? As scholars have been wondering about all sorts of factors which might affect people's environmental behavior and attitudes. That's a very important and also very complex issue. I think that there are some geophysical influences, but of course these tend to be tied with cultural and social influences also. So for example, uh, in, in Finland, we have lo lots of forests and lakes and we still have the tradition of going to saunas and samokotitsis and so on. And on a general level, one can see some connections between having an interest on nature environment in a broad sense and these social, cultural and geophysical factors. But then again, uh, many Finns also have a very utilitarian attitude to, towards the woods and, 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 and environment. So, so it's not black, black and white, white either. But countries like the Scandinavian and Nordic countries, uh, where we have had a very good educational system. And the result is that science literacy is very high globally compared. So that's one major factor that I, I, I would lo look at. And also uh, things like social trust, for, for example, are quite Im important. And related to that, uh, the political disputes about climate change specifically, uh, they are not so drastic as they are in some other countries. Of course, we have different opinions also in Scandinavian Nordic countries, but it's very different compared to the United States, for example, where I did part of my dissertation research. So it's, it's a complex, completely different setting. That must be something which makes it hard to bring global policy in line with regard to the environment. The fact that in each country there is a specific situation in which the discussion about the climate sits. I find that in the UK we have a strong connection with our natural environment. But could we all benefit from a few more pressing geophysical influences? That might be, but of course, the practical situations are always very complex. And for example, the general situation related to democracy and civil participation, that's a very important thing. So in, in many countries, understandably, people have very pressing issues re related to uh, interhuman justice and the political system and democracy and so on. So there tends to be less space for environmental matters and people may be still quite concerned but it may result uh, in a social atmosphere where a sort of general discourse about eco-anxiety or climate anxiety doesn't get very much room because the space is occupied by uh, other very pressing questions. So many people have asked me that, you know, is this eco-anxiety or climate anxiety a phenomenon for the middle class and, and the more wealthy classes and the more wealthy nations uh, around the globe? And on one hand, one has to recognize the, the impact of these so, social and justice issues and situations. But on the other hand, there is also evidence that we have environmentally sensitive people around the globe. It may just be that they can't raise up their voice because there's no room for that kind of discussion in their social contexts. And in your article published in Sustainability, you 
You write that these social contexts often mean that eco-anxiety and climate anxiety have been difficult issues for people to talk about. Why do you think this is? Uh, in my article, I'm doing wide, wide literary reviews uh, about anxiety and the ecological crisis. And I think this question that you asked is something that the social science researchers and sociologists uh, have something very important to say. They have been studying phenomena like socially constructed silence, uh, which means that they may be socially felt pressures to keep silent about some issue because that's so troubling for the community. Uh, and very interesting studies have been done in Norway, for example, by sociologist Karimaria Norgard. Uh, in the beginning of the 2000s, already then she noticed by doing uh, long time research there uh, that people knew about climate change and its effects, but they were not able to speak about it together with others. It was too complicated, you know, Norway having this oil industry and all the complex feelings that are linked with this issue. And that also points to one possible way forward, which is that even though it's difficult, we would need sort of safe spaces and situations where people can uh, try to discuss and recognize these kinds of emotions and feelings, including various kinds of eco-anxiety. So would creation of these safe spaces for discussion of eco-anxiety allow us to bring all of the different dimensions and interpretations of eco-anxiety into line under one definition in order to develop a clinical response. Uh, research about eco-anxiety and climate anxiety has greatly increased now just during the last year or two years. And one pressing question is how should it be defined? And what's the relation of eco-anxiety with, for example, anxiety disorders? And this is one important part of my article. So I'm point pointing out that we need more research about the various forms of eco-anxiety. But already now, it's clear that very many people feel some kind of eco-anxiety and not even nearly all of them have any, you know, anxiety disorder like symptoms. So I really think that we should define the phenomenon in a, in a broad manner related to various kinds of anxiety as related to ecological crisis. But then we, of course, also need thinking about the stronger manifestations of anxiety. And sometimes ecological issues play a role also in people's various anxiety disorders or even post-traumatic stress disorders, for, for example. So this need for clarity about the various forms of the phenomena uh, is one of the reasons why I try, try to work hard with the article. You also talk about two sides of eco-anxiety, practical and existential. How should we distinguish between these two different forms? Yeah, this ties in with my even more recent article, also published with MDPI, uh, called Eco-Anxiety and Environmental Education. Uh, I might say some, some words about that, that later, but that article actually has a, has a figure, a graphic figure, about four dimensions of anxiety as related to eco-anxiety. So on one hand, we have these possible strong anxiety symptoms, 
And then we often have anxiety as emotion, which means that a person or, or even a creature feels problematic uncertainty and then tries to think that what should I do in this situation? And very often that leads into gathering of new information and, and often changing one's behavior. And that's closely related to what anxiety researcher Charlie Kurt calls practical anxiety. So, and, and I'm linking that practical anxiety with the good effects of eco-anxiety. So there's also this motivation dimension and, you know, stopping to think that, hey, what do we actually have to change in our behavior both individually and socially. And I would stress personally the social dimension because the changes that are needed are so structural. But then underneath, we also have this existential anxiety dimension. And that's close to me because of my background as a scholar in theology and philosophy and related matters. But we have long traditions of existential psychology also, where these issues of, you know, guilt and what's the meaning of life and those sorts of things have been discussed. And now I think that we need to apply those kinds of discussions also to the topic of the ecological crisis, because many people are asked that what's my role in the world with all this ecological damage and threats and, and how about meaning meaning of life and so on. So I think there's profound existential questions related to this phenomenon of eco-anxiety. So does this dichotomy compound the difficulties of treating eco-anxiety? As it seems we could all benefit from a little practical anxiety to encourage us to make better decisions regarding the environment but not to the extent that it paralyzes us. Well, personally, I, I probably wouldn't use the word dichotomy. I would try to speak about these four, four dimensions, but I understand the meaning of, of your question. And if we think about, for example, the stronger anxiety symptoms, which then again are slightly different thing from the existential anxiety, because people may have various degrees of existential anxiety. It may be linked with, you know, heavy anxiety symptoms, or then it may be linked with uh, trying to wrestle with issues of life over long periods of time without any serious anxiety. But anyway, uh, some scholars have been using the concept of paradox of anxiety to describe the situation where the very thing that causes us to raise awareness to some issues may at the same time develop into so strong and paralyzing manifestations that, that it hinders us from doing what needs to be done in relation to these same threats that, that it, it caused us to notice. So this kind of paradox can, can be seen. And my answer would, would be that uh, we, we need various kinds of resources and social support so that we don't end up in sort of vicious circles of anxiety. So often in literature about uh, medical care, for example, uh, or psychiatry, they use the word anxiety to mean strong anxiety symptoms. So sometimes just, just the single use of the word is tied up with this idea of anxiety disorders or strong, strong symptoms. Uh, and that's something that we need to, need to think, think about then. And of these forms of anxiety, do you find yourself ever experiencing any? 
Well, definitely yes, and that's something that I get asked about often. Uh, in Finland, what ha happened was that I became a sort of national spokesperson for matters related to eco-anxiety and climate anxiety. So I've been giving a lot of in interviews and stuff stuff in Finland, some also in English, but mostly, mostly in my home, home country. And very often people ask, Uh, what's the history of my own eco-anxiety with the work that I'm doing. And, and personally, uh, I've had the privilege uh, of getting enough resources, especially early on in my life, that uh, I've been able uh, to sur survive without strong anxiety symptoms. But I do have felt lots of ecological grief, for example, or sadness, and sometimes low moods which might be called eco-depression, but one has to be always careful with these terms, which, uh, you know, sound like diagnosis. So I'm not speaking here exactly about a diagnosis of eco ecological depression, but uh, low moods have, have been often a companion of mine. And I think that that is something that we've all encountered at times, be it because of the environment or any number of other factors. And I know that many people have recently had their relationship with their mental health heightened because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Could anxiety stemming from COVID-19 confound eco or climate anxiety? Uh, when the COVID-19 pandemic began in early 2020, uh, I of course did what many people did uh, respectively. I tried to apply uh, what, what I know into the novel situation. And for me, that task was to think about how does this relate to eco-anxiety. And there are certain profound similarities because in both cases, the state of the world affects our psychological well-being and and also the, there are overlaps in the role of so-called death anxiety uh, and perhaps also health anxiety the health anxiety element is stronger with covid-19 but it's not absent from eco anxiety either there's many health hazards also related to environmental damage and this actually let me to think again about the um, relations between worry, fear, anxiety and panic. Uh, because with eco-anxiety, there's been uh, constant worry, for example, and rumination and catastrophizing are often symptoms of strong eco-anxiety, for, for example. And then with COVID-19, the events were more rapid and they felt even more life-threatening and that resulted in more panic reactions. So we have people who have had panic attacks because of eco-anxiety. That's something that needs more, more research, but there are examples. But we have, have much more people who have felt panic because of COVID-19, which is sort of logical because it's, it's felt as more threatening. So there's these different kinds of shades of reactions uh, related to fear, worry, anxiety, panic and horror uh, and various situations related to the ecological crisis or pandemias can evoke them. So this is some, something that probably would be good to think about more now that almost every person on the globe has some experience about COVID-19 stress, at least if not anxiety, and then about the relations with, with our ecological situation.
So, could the parallel be a useful one? Do you think that we could use some of the energy that governments and citizens have focused on combating COVID-19 and apply it to the fight against the climate crisis? Uh, I think that the parallels uh, are not 100% so solid, but there are important things to be learned about COVID-19 responses. Uh, first of all, many people are sort of relieved uh, to notice that contemporary societies can actually make strong decisions to protect their citizens. And we know that not all the countries in the world did this, but at least luckily some countries and some, some leaders were able to do so. And because many environmentally sensitive people have been wishing for more political action on environmental and climate issues for decades, this might give us some hope that perhaps it would be possible. But because the nature of the threats is so different, uh, that makes, makes it much harder uh, in the case of, of ecological issues. But then um, perhaps on an even deeper level, many people have been relieved to see how much compassion and altruism the COVID-19 has also brought out. So, and this is related to these sort of grand narratives about humanity and the so-called human nature, uh, which are closely related to the uh, troubles we have, have in, the, in the world. And again, we saw many kinds of reactions with COVID-19. We saw some selfish reactions, but we also saw much of everyday com compassion. Uh, and this is something that I know that has, has given many people uh, hope also in re relation to ecological problems. But the situation is complex. That's good to hear that there is a little hope to be found in both these situations. And you ask in your article how to increase the adaptive potential of people's experience of eco-anxiety and alleviate the potentially paralyzing forms of it. How can we work towards this? In the Finnish discussion, this is something that I have also been often asked about, and there's been good cooperation between me and the Finnish Mental Health Society, for example. So there's been a network of people trying to think about the practical side of these issues. Uh, but more research is needed, and that's why in my uh, article in the Sustainability Journal, uh, it's, it's more in the, in the form of question that how should it be done, and the role of local contexts is, of course, very important. Uh, and I do realize that the Finnish situation, for example, we have lots of social capital and peaceful conditions, even though we have our own, own troubles. So it's, it's easier for us to develop, for example, practices of discussion groups related to ecological emotions and eco-anxiety. So that's one, one very important thing that there would be these safe spaces that we already briefly mentioned before that people could try to open up their cells. And uh, social support is something that happens in those settings, but also there's a lot of peer support uh, and the feelings of isolation are lessened because people realize that, hey, others have similar kinds of feelings and I'm not actually alone with these emotions. And this is something that often happens in various peer groups. Uh, the topics may be very diverse, but when people come, come together, very often they say that, hmm, I thought that I was sort of alone with this issue, but now I see that actually 
me lots of lots of people in roughly similar situations are feeling exactly the same way and that can be re- very relieving and in my experience it often generates social networks they might be just you know a couple of people or they might grow uh, in into even wider wider networks and some organizations like the good grief network in the united states are intentionally creating support groups and social networks for people feeling grief about ecological damage for, for example so, so those are some of the initiatives that can be taken self-care is also of course an important part and people have various resources of that but and that's another similarity between the covid-19 and the ecological crisis uh, that almost all psychologists and therapists who have written about coping with covid and coping with eco anxiety have recommended limiting our media intake or our media diet because with uh, smartphones and social media we can be in touch uh, with information uh, all through the day but if we do so uh, that that very easily leads to feelings of overwhelm so i think that's something that we really need to do both in relation to the pandemia and in relation to the ecological crisis that uh, we need to follow what's happening but we don't need to follow that all, all the time so it sounds like in finland at least the discourse is moving in the right direction for our listeners the link to dr pakala's latest article published in mdpi's sustainability journal can be found in the podcast description for the final 5 minutes of our podcast We'd like to ask our authors to come up with five things for us to look out for in their field in the next five years. These can be future developments, new publications, conferences, TV shows, anything. So, Dr. Pakala, what's next for eco anxiety? Hmm, fascinating question. Well, first, I see signs that people from very different contexts and countries are now beginning to discuss this issue, and that's very, very good, because, for example, some people, if they have many social and justice issues around, they may not even like the wording eco anxiety or climate anxiety. For them, for something like additional stress or distress created by ecological problems, that might be a more suitable way to put it. So, so it's very cool that more people from various contexts are beginning to discuss the issue. Uh, then, second, I also see signs of a widening discourse about the various emotions and feelings related to what is here roughly called eco anxiety, and that also is a very good thing because, for example, if you have strong feelings of guilt or strong feelings of grief or strong feelings of di- despair or various kinds of anger and rage they are all slightly different c- circumstances or maybe quite strongly different even so i think we need more sensitivity for the various affective dimensions uh, and third perhaps i would raise up this issue of anger and rage because that's something that hasn't been very much discussed in the interdisciplinary literature related to eco anxiety that I'm discussing in my two articles in sustainability journal in autumn 2020 so that's 
very often present in climate change demonstrations, for example, it's present with climate change skeptics and deniers, for example, then there are, you know, vague feelings of frustration among lots of general public, so to say. So I think we need more discussion about the varieties of anger, rage, frustration and, and so on. Uh, and then it's difficult to pick up uh, only five, but even though five, five is also also a lot. But perhaps I would stress that we need more elaboration about this practical anxiety. I was glad that you asked several questions about it in this podcast also. So uh, it's very important that we don't see eco-anxiety mainly as a problem because it's an adaptive reaction to the state of the world really fundamentally. It's a problem if it gets paralyzing, but we have to remember that there's this motivational side to it and there's a warning sign uh, embedded with anxiety. So we realize that, hey, there's a problem and we need to change the behavior of our societies. So this practical anxiety, enthusiasm and motivation is, is some, something that hopefully we'll be discussing more in relation to eco-anxiety in the following years. Thank you. It seems like we've come a long way in the field of eco-anxiety. And this is in no small part down to the work of Dr. Pakala and his colleagues around the globe. However, it appears that there is equally as far to go concerning research and in particular clinical responses to eco-anxiety. I'd like to thank you, Dr. Pakala, for a fascinating insight into what is a vast and often troubling field. Yet there does seem to be hope, including in the notion that our eco-anxiety could be a force for practical change and that a wider understanding of the problem will allow for more effective treatment of its more damaging form. So thank you for joining me, Dr. Pakala. Thank you very much, Jessica. I'd also like to thank you for tuning in to the inaugural MDPI podcast. I hope that it will be the first of many. If you have any questions or are interested in publishing with MDPI, please don't hesitate to connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook and Twitter. We also want to know what you would like to hear about in the MDPI podcast in the future. If there's something in particular that piques your curiosity, send me an email at jasper.clo at mdpi.com. You can find links to our website, social media, and the email address for podcast ideas in the podcast description, along with links to both of Dr. Pakala's articles in sustainability. I've been Jasper Clow, and this has been the MDPI Podcast. <laughs>